Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And of course, we are proudly sponsored by Build America Mutual and the Government Finance Officers Association. I'm Justin Marlowe and joined, as always, by my intrepid, fearless, supremely talented co-host, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Thanks, Justin. Uh, always glad to be here. And just wanted to share uh, that I have, I'm trying to hatch chickens, obviously not me, myself. I bought an incubator, <laughs> but, uh, the, the, uh, the update, uh, the, the line of thinking is I accidentally have a rooster. Maybe these eggs are fertilized. Let's see if they are. So that's, that's the extent of thought on that. <laughs> Yes. Well, yeah. we would definitely be breaking news here today if if uh, <laughs> you, in fact, were were. Uh, but yeah, uh, that's great. Now it sounds like uh, trying to take that uncertainty and and maybe work it to your advantage. Who knows exactly? Who, who knows yeah. what you might do? Like many of our guests do right. on the show. <laughs> yeah, <it's>, <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Well, speaking of of all of our guests, uh, we're going to do something different with this particular episode. We have, uh, for anyone who has been following the podcast, knows that we just put out our 25th episode. And so we're very excited about that. It's been a, a lot of fun and, and we look forward to continuing to do this podcast and bring all the insights to all of you that we bring. But we did want to, at, at 25 episodes, take the moment to just step back a little bit, zoom out and reflect a little bit on what we've learned in our time working on this podcast so far. We talk often, uh, Liz and I both, about all the ways that the things that we've learned in talking to our guests have reshaped in many ways the way we think about our respective work. And we wanted to share some of those same thoughts with you, the listeners, some things that we've observed, some themes that have emerged, and to give everyone uh, a chance to kind of refamiliarize themselves with everything that we've done in the 25 episodes leading up to all of this. Uh, Liz, does that sound like a, a good plan of attack for you? Yeah, Justin, um, that sounds great. And I think one thing that keeps running through my head when I when I think of all of the episodes we've done on like such a wide range of topics from school finance to wildfires to infrastructure to human capital. I mean, we've, we've talked about so many things, but I think one of our first episodes kind of nails it in terms of what ties this all together. And um, I'm thinking about when we spoke with Mark Funkhauser, friend, colleague, the president of Funkhauser Associates, the former mayor of Kansas City, when he was on our show, he talked about how public finance underpins everything. And something he likes to say a lot is, you can't take care of the people if you can't take care of the money. And that that kind of simple notion really underpins everything about public finance. That is what drew me to public finance is that when you really start looking under the hood, I mean, it is it is about everything from the sidewalks we walk on to the pipes that carry the, our sink water to the schools that we send our kids to, to the parks that we go. I mean, like everything. And I think we've done a really good job on showing that throughout this first season of the show. So I think that's all incredibly well said, Liz, and I agree completely. And that's why we do what we do. That's why we try to bring all of these things to to life for as broad an audience as possible, because it is so important and it does touch on everything that government does, particularly state and local governments. And given the breadth of the kinds of topics that we've covered and, and just how expansive the field of state and local public finance is, we did want to take the opportunity with this episode to provide 
again, a bit of a retrospective, go back and, and highlight some of the themes that we think have emerged in the time that we've been doing this podcast, show you some of the different guests that have spoken to some of the issues that we think have been really important, and really just pull it all together in a way for anyone who might be new to the podcast or anyone who's been listening is just looking for an opportunity to recap everything that we've covered so far. So we wanted to go highlight a couple themes as we do that. And the first theme that Liz had kind of alluded to a second ago that comes to mind immediately is the notion of infrastructure and how we have adopted this much more expanding definition of infrastructure. Liz and I, you, you have both been studying infrastructure for a long time now, but it's pretty remarkable how the word infrastructure today conjures up something very different than it did maybe a decade ago. And that has absolutely been a running theme on this podcast, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think that idea of expanding infrastructure start not started during the pandemic in the sense that when um, so many people were cut off because they didn't have a good broadband connection or no broadband connection at all, that really highlighted the fact that something that 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, we thought of as like sort of a luxury or a nice to have has really now just become part of the infrastructure conversation in America. And, and I think the pandemic sort of made that official. But then beyond that, when we saw the Infrastructure Jobs and Investment Act, I mean, that included other things that were not maybe traditionally thought of as infrastructure. So in the last few years, it's been such a big part of the conversation in the sense, not in the traditional sense of, oh, we have an infrastructure funding deficit, which we do, but it's also been what exactly is infrastructure? It's a lot more than, than we pigeonholed it into maybe 10, 10 or 15 years ago. Agreed completely. And, and an important part of that expansion has been including in infrastructure, a lot of capacity that we might call sort of contingent capacity, right? Or capacity that we don't need all the time. And when we think about wildfire response, when we think about reallocating public safety resources to include uh, the, you know, the ability to dispatch uh, mental health professionals or behavioral health professionals as part of a police response or a public safety response, you know, all of these different ways of thinking about what kind of capacity do you need, not all the time, but in really key moments. And that's become part of the infrastructure conversation. It's been really, really interesting to watch and certainly a theme that we've covered uh, in a couple different episodes. So as an example of that, we spoke with Colin Ford from, from the Pew Trusts, and he did some research on uh, called burning through state budgets. And we spoke to him about how there are known unknowns in the sense that state governments are spending a certain amount on of their budgets, a good chunk of them sometimes, on wildfire response every year. And it's always treated as this sort of emergency situation. But because of what's happening with the climate, it is, it's no longer an irregular expense. And I think Colin's point about, you know, at what point do we start looking at, at something like this as a regular capital expense as part of our infrastructure budget? Certainly, Colin, wildfires are their own beast, particularly for, for the, the places where they occur the most. Can you tell us some, what are some of the you know, big takeaways that you hope policymakers get from this research? Sure. I think the first is that wildfire spending, to the extent that we can quantify it, is on the rise. Combined spending by the U.S. Forest Service and the Department of Interior, which are two of the most important federal agencies that are involved in wildfire, doubled. Uh, between fiscal year 2011 and 2020. 
it's much harder to, to come by state data on expenditures. But Washington, for example, tripled its spending on wildfires if you compare the first half of the 2010s to the second half. So, you know, main takeaway from that is that it's putting budget pressure on states. And that's really taking two forms. The first is how to adequately budget for growing and unpredictable suppression and recovery costs. And the other is how to make sure there's funding available to invest in mitigation, which are things like prescribed burns or mechanical thinning of brush uh, that can help reduce risk in the long term and hopefully then start to manage the, the growing costs and expense related to wildfires. We talked a second ago about the, the IIJA and the IRA, the two big pieces of federal legislation that have uh, really broadened single-handedly our definition of infrastructure. A part of that expansion was to include broadband access as an essential service in much the same way we might think of water or electricity or other essential services. We had Perry Sabdi and Krista Kanalakis on a while back to tell us about some of the challenges in ensuring access to broadband, particularly in rural areas. Super big umbrella there, but maybe you can highlight a couple of the, the key kind of pain points in terms of expanding infrastructure in rural, urban areas and, and everywhere in between. One of the issues is there's infrastructure costs in rural areas that fail to connect people like you, Liz, to the network in a way that makes sense and, and helps you do your work every day. And there are cost issues, especially in urban areas. And what's interesting is these issues affect both of them, even in dense urban built areas like Chicago or Manhattan, the Bronx um, and Brooklyn, and isolated rural areas where there are mountains, uh, Appalachia, we've done work in, Krista can tell us about in Alaska, availability just isn't there. You know, the broadband signal can't go around the building. It also can't go over the mountain. So that's a big issue around availability. Second major issue is access. Avail it may be available to you, but it may not be affordable because prices may not be competitive and there may only be one supplier, one satellite supplier, one wireless supplier, one wire line supplier or fiber supplier through cable. Um, so it's really interesting if you look at your state and you look at all the geographic areas that have two or three providers on two different technologies, all of a sudden the pricing gets a lot more reasonable. In terms of the FCC challenge, Krista, you may want to join in. Yeah, so, so with, with the FCC challenge, um, we're seeing, we're hearing that a lot of governments are um, navigating some tricky waters and sort of identifying where their residents are even uh, located, um, as well as um, who has access in those locations. So a lot of the work that we're doing is showing up and almost hand-holding through the dark some of our government partners as we sort of navigate some of these complicated processes. Yes, I think, and, and as, as our listeners know, um, potentially know that um, sometimes that, that issue of broadband even gets recorded on these podcasts with, uh, with uh, funky audio recordings and that kind of thing. So not only is it essential uh, for, for just internet access, but it's, it's essential for a whole lot more things that we do these days, including what we're doing right here. Um, 
getting back to infrastructure, though, I mean, it, I thought it was really interesting or a friend earlier on in the show. Uh, one of our earliest episodes was on transit finance uh, with Dwight Burns from the Dallas area rapid transit. He's the CFO there. And this sort of touched on, I guess, what's happening with rapid transit in the in the pandemic and, and after the pandemic. And how do you focus infrastructure, transit infrastructure these days on on making sure that you're building it where people are trying to go. And and interestingly enough, I think one of my favorite like accidental recordings in of the season was in this episode when during one of Dwight's responses, an actual train was only could be heard in the background because it was going by. So it was uh, it was very legit. <laughs> Transit agencies in general, I, I believe that our uh, association of public transit systems, APTA, uh, put out some, uh, some verbiage recently saying that ridership is coming back, that overall transit agencies, and DART included, will, will have to uh, adjust. You're going to have a question to that effect later on. How are we going to adjust to changing commuter patterns and changing ridership? And well, yeah, We're ready for that. I think we're ready for that conversation. We were actually having that conversation even before the pandemic. I'm curious. So it's honestly, I was expecting you to say things were a lot worse. So this is good news. <laughs> um, but now with all the federal aid that has come in, how have you been? Is that a, is that a train? It train? is. <laughs> That's really <Literally>. appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> our lake, yeah, our lake rail is right, is right next to our headquarters. That's right. That's uh, so you, uh, you, you, you eat what you cook, as they say. That's, That's right. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> we also spent some time talking about infrastructure in the human services sense of the word. In an episode uh, a little while ago, we had Beth Goldberg from the city of Kirkland, Washington on to tell us about Kirkland and uh, the, the North Puget Sound's efforts to try to bring a different type of response to uh, crises that public safety are dispatched to, and including in particular behavioral health responses. It's uh, an effort that's received a lot of attention, and uh, certainly I wrote a little bit about it in some of my own work, and it's something that has received uh, some awards and, and lots of different accolades. One of the really interesting things that Beth pointed out was that when we want to try to expand capacity in the way that we're describing it, you often have to do it in, through some very creative financing uh, kinds of ways, including in this case, especially creating a nonprofit and having to create a very different kind of nonprofit local government interaction to be able to do the kinds of things that their uh, crisis response team was hoping to do. Potentially also augmented with caseload as we get more caseload data. Uh, the challenge in terms of finding the funding was some of the cities that are more reliant on property tax and don't have specific um, levies dedicated to uh, public safety did have difficult a difficulty finding the funds to support the program. So that was that was one challenge. Um, in terms of the nonprofit in Kirkland's role as the fiscal and administrative agent, we will set up a separate accounting system. And I don't know how common this is in other parts of the country. Certainly in Washington state, it's a model that is um, used somewhat commonly to provide services to local jurisdictions, multiple jurisdictions. So for example, our dispatch um, function, Kirkland's dispatch function, we're part of a regional coalition 
that um, handles dispatch calls. There is a separate entity, it's called NORCOM, that um, we contribute to, and they're providing the dispatch services to its member cities. There is a governing board that governs it. So this is following that model. The money from the other cities and, and the grant funds we receive will come into the city of Kirkland as the fiscal agent but be monitored in a separate fund in accounting structure that is subject to um, a separate audit. Um, and that's kind of the, the flow of the finances. And one of the advantages is that if this was a standalone agency, it would have to have its own finance shop, its own HR shop, its own you know, attorney services, IT, things of that nature by having it as, as an independent yet affiliated program within the city of Kirkland, they're going to pay us overhead for those back office type functions, but it's more efficient economies of scale rather than, than setting up whole units within um, the entity to handle those responsibilities. So another big theme that we were talking about earlier that we we've seen throughout this season is on data and information and 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 that does overlap actually quite often um, with with infrastructure or infrastructure development investment um, one of those one of the the episodes that I think really captures that and, and that was a really good story too was when we had Eric Horvath on from South Bend Public Works he talked about a project they had with their sewer system uh, to manage overflow. And he tells the story of how they went from facing, because of a consent decrease, like a more than a half billion dollar potential price tag for complying with this consent decree to being able to use technology and, and the data from, from installing that technology to essentially just like make some changes with within the existing infrastructure of south of the sewer system to comply in a way that actually saved them a ton of money it was such a good story and so what we did was we worked with the university of nordame and the master student there to build some sensors and these sensors then would would tell us how much sewer is in each of these pipes and um and we built a, a model then that um, also had um, additional throttle pipes and control valves that could open and close. So it could push more sewer or less sewer to the interceptor line. What happens is downstream in the, in the system by the treatment plant, let's say the interceptor has half of its capacity. That sensor talks to the other sensors in the system. It says, you know, it's raining, you got a lot of flow, open up those valves and push more flow to me because I can handle it. And as that interceptor then fills up and it's getting ready to surcharge and back up into people's basements, then it radios back to them and tells them, hey, I'm getting full, you need to start closing your valves because I can't handle as much flow. But by putting in these control valves and, and a real-time support system uh, you know, with an overall cost of probably somewhere around $10 million, what it did was it allowed us to reduce that 2 billion gallons of flow that was going to the river every, every year to about uh, 400 million gallons. So we were able to get about 70% of our flow out of the river 
just by optimizing the use of the existing assets that we had. But we didn't, we couldn't do that until we knew, until we had data. We now had some data and we were looking at the data versus the model that our control plan was built on. And this model, we try to make it fit the real world. But in actuality, models are really just, they're, they're not good. They, they, you know, they, they do their best to try to figure out how much flow is going to come through a pipe and, and get to a certain area. But because there's so many unknown factors underground, like, you know, you have all sorts of stuff going on in the system that's hard to create a perfect model. And so that was a big part of it. So what we did was we created a new model based on the data that was using artificial intelligence. So it was a cognitive hydraulic response system that was using these millions and millions of data points that we're getting every year and informing the model and self-learning. So it just continues to get smarter and smarter as, as you have different incidents. So we're able to build uh, probably the most accurate model anywhere in the world and, and have a really good feel for the exact flows that are going to happen so that we're not overbuilding or underbuilding um, any of the assets to control the sewer system. Oh, fascinating. So it sounds almost uh, like the the Terminator comes to public works or something <laughs> like uh, looking for uh, walking around looking for Sarah Connor or something like that because it certainly brings a uh, a whole new uh, element to this. Very very interesting. I have a couple of quick follow up questions on that, Eric. So another really great story that we were able to highlight. It was in the area of property taxes. There aren't often a ton of good stories in the world of property taxes, but if there's one in particular uh, that was brought to light by uh, my colleague here at the University of Chicago, Chris Berry, uh, talking a lot about his research on property tax assessment practices. Uh, if you, anybody who's familiar with this knows that there's been um, lots of work recently that has highlighted how certain types of properties are systematically undervalued or overvalued, and that can lead to big disparities in the way that property tax bills are levied on different sorts of uh, homeowners in particular. And uh, Chris talked a lot about his research in trying to understand the underlying causes of that. Why is it that certain properties are systematically overvalued or undervalued and how his work informed work that was being done by the Cook County Assessor here in Chicago and how the Cook County Assessor has in many ways changed its practices to try to respond to that particular challenge. And it's been a really exciting process to watch and some real heartening results that Chris told us about in an episode a while back. As I said, the, the assessor has, uh, has just finished sort of the first complete reassessment of the, of the entire county at this point, and the results are extremely impressive. The regressivity is, if not completely gone, reduced very substantially, uh, certainly bringing almost all of the standard statistics on regressivity back into an acceptable range and uh, removing the most egregious kind of overassessment. So it's not uncommon in many jurisdictions that, that, that the lower price properties are assessed at 25, 40% more than what they're worth, really, really uh, extreme. And, uh, and that's almost entirely gone. My key takeaway is when the assessor's office has hired talented people and put uh, resources into fixing the system, there's great progress that can be made. And I'm really impressed with what, what I'm seeing thus far. And where, where was Cook County before on, on this, on the regressivity? Uh, Cook County was, was certainly one of the worst uh, big jurisdictions 
Cook County, of course, has its own perversities, which I hope are not typical elsewhere. But you know, the, we we have an extremely ro uh, maybe robust, might be a fair description, appeals process. We Cook County processes over three hundred thousand appeals a year, vastly more than than any other jurisdiction in the country. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that there's an army of tax lawyers who work on contingency fees to reduce your taxes, and many in Chicago do that. Uh, so almost automatically, without even looking, you know, at their bill, they'll they'll initiate an, an appeal just because that's the sort of system we have, and, and perhaps unsurprisingly, those tax lawyers are historically some of the biggest donors to the elected assessor and the board of review. It's also elected and 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 oversees the appeals process. So we have our own our own perversities here that certainly have made our system over the years uh, worse. Yeah, that was such a such an interesting development in use of data. I actually, I wrote about that for uh, for Route 50 newsletter that I did uh, sometime after that episode went out. So I agree that that's, I think, one of the most powerful stories of, uh, of data doing good. Um, someone else that we had on who talked a lot about data, who talked a lot about other things, uh, what I think our only guest who also has an IMDb page, as you pointed out on this episode, Rudy Sallow, who's a <laughs> <laughs> who's a, a bond lawyer. A bona fide movie star. Indeed, That's indeed. Right. <laughs> so he's a bond lawyer. And we, we spoke with him about um, building back better after natural disasters, the politics of climate risk disclosure. Um, we got to insert his phrase, sexy infrastructure, into the whole conversation. But I think what I got out of that conversation most is just like what what stakeholders, what uh, what data, what, what people are looking at in terms of how to how to evaluate climate change and climate change disclosure, and and the risk of that when you're when you're looking at a municipality. I want to go back even further and uh, and talk about the SEC climate rule. You can you give just like the quick elevator speech um, answer as to why local governments need to be aware of and and paying attention to this rule? Because of the Tower Amendment, the SEC cannot directly um, regulate the municipal market. Right? They do everything through Rule Fifteen C Two Twelve. Okay, so they regulate the the underwriters. Uh, that are in the municipal market. That's how they get to issuers. So if if the SEC is doing anything in the corporate world, we over in the municipal world need to pay attention to that. That's how that's actually how our disclosure is usually kind of modeled after. It is kind of modeled after the corporate world, which you know has the filings and they you, so the Securities Act of 1933, Securities Act 1934. They directly regulate that market. So we must pay attention to everything that's happening over there. Uh, in order to bring our disclosure up to market standards, right? Yes, there's municipal market standards, but the reality is you you have to look at disclosure as a whole, and you always got to pay attention. We, we we absolutely must respect that, a hundred percent. Okay, so from what I hear you saying, yes, the the rule does not directly regulate state and local government disclosures, but it does regulate the the firms that handle these these issuances, the bond cancel, and and therefore it indirectly can impact state and local government uh, issuers in terms of continuing disclosure. Uh, well, I wouldn't. I mean, to my knowledge, as of right now, I, I don't know about the um, the ongoing update requirements that are being discussed in the corporate world. That's still being worked on, right? And and as that's being worked on, we're watching it in the municipal market. 
that's at, at a bare minimum in the municipal market when you're going out there with a primary offering in your POS and then your OS, your official, excuse me, your preliminary official statement and then your official statement, you should have some climate risk disclosure as, as a part of that. Like that's that's like the bare minimum nowadays where some issuers still don't. And, and that's where the that's where the political side of climate change gets involved, right? And that's where sometimes, you know, bond disclosure council can get stuck. Like even, you know, bond council has a particular client that's that doesn't believe in climate change and doesn't want that as a part of their disclosure. I mean, what do they do? You know, I mean, I said it's a difficult conversation. That's the unfortunate political side of climate change that that I was referring to. So Liz, we launched this podcast in the fall of 2022. And at that time, one of the, the things everybody in the world of public finance was talking about was the federal money and the way that this federal money was going to bring about some transformational changes in the way that we think about state and local finance, how we finance certain kinds of infrastructure, the the definition of infrastructure, as we've talked about, the ways that the federal and state and local governments interact with one another, because this these new dollars came with all sorts of strings attached. And a lot of us in the business were spending a lot of time trying to understand what those much broader impacts were going to be. And as it turned out, the federal money is important and is making its way through the system. And we're all watching that very carefully. But every time we tried to talk about federal money and the role of the federal money, it seemed like what was actually happening was it was being uh, overshadowed, shall we say, by the real story, which was the economic uncertainty that was manifest around that time. And some have even gone so far as to say that that economic uncertainty was a result of all of the federal money making its way into uh, states and localities and the economy writ large. We've talked about this theme of economic uncertainty with lots of different guests. What about those discussions uh, really stands out in your memory? Yeah, I think it's just, it, it evolved from, I think what the cause maybe of the uncertainty is. So you had, um, there was still a lot of coming off of the pandemic type uh, conversations we were having with our guests about like what that meant, what they went through and that kind of thing and, and how they're managing now. And then, but that evolved from like a pandemic recovery conversation into an economic volatility conversation, which is what we're dealing with, with currently. But um, it, the, the, the theme is the same, right? Like, crazy stuff is happening and we're just trying to we're just trying to manage through it definitely and we we could talk about lots of different interviews that have touched on this theme uh, but two come to mind immediately one going all the way back to the the one of the first episodes we did of this podcast with jeff white from columbia capital management jeff's a financial advisor and he works with state and local government issuers all over the country he talked a lot about inflation and economic uncertainty and how that was affecting the way that his clients were going about doing infrastructure projects, managing their budgets, and so forth. Fast forward to our most recent episode with Michigan Treasurer Rachel Eubanks, and she came back to exactly the same theme, talking about the challenges of forecasting revenues in an era of uncertain market conditions, thinking about the ways that the state was trying to partner with local governments to try to mitigate some of that same uncertainty. So this theme of economic uncertainty came back in lots of different ways. These are two really good examples of the ways that we've explored it on the podcast. Yeah, very. It, it's, it's been another running theme on this podcast is the legacy of the Great Recession and all the ways that that shaped the immediate response to COVID. And then in some ways that make a lot of sense, right? It's sort of 
really conservative financial management practices. Yes. Uh, yep. But that were also maybe in some ways a mismatch, <laughs> you know, between uh, one, not, not all crises are the same. And that became pretty clear in the immediate aftermath of, of COVID, as you said, as revenues improved unexpectedly, and as we saw a very different kind of immediate response than certainly compared to the Great Recession. Yeah, and I can't I can't blame him. I mean, having having been a municipal budget manager, I I certainly sympathize with with how aggressively folks looked at it. And being the manager of an organization that relied on income from a market that completely shut down for a period of a couple months, um, you know, certainly we we were having the same conversations internally about what if there is no revenue for the rest of the year. Right. And then we had some other sort of weird incentives. I had clients telling me that that employees they furloughed were actually getting a pay cut through those extended and enhanced unemployment benefits. <laughs> I'm sorry, they were getting a pay increase through those en enhanced and, and extended unemployment benefits while they were on furlough. And so, you know, organizations were looking at, you know, we want to treat our employees right. And normally a furlough is not a great thing for, for families. Well, in this case, you know, they knew their employees were going were gonna to be on furlough and and doing at least as well and maybe better than they were doing uh, on the on the payroll. So it it made those decisions a little bit easier, I think, in in certain cases. Anything we haven't gotten into that we think is essential? Yeah, I think the the one other piece of this is construction inflation. And, you know, mm -hmm. just sort of anecdotal uh, conversations. I um you know my office is in the Kansas City metro. Uh, we have a city government client. It's about seventy thousand. It's actually my my home community. They they went out to bid on a twenty million dollar fire station that came back at twenty eight million dollars. Mm. I have a YMCA client uh, in the southeast that has knocked ten percent out of their out of their project budget three different times as they've gone through the design bid process. Just absolute misery from the perspective of cost inflation, and when you couple that with rising interest rates, you know, folks that started planning projects two or three or four years ago saying, oh, Jeff, we need to, we need to build this, you know, this fire station, 20 million bucks, run us a debt service schedule. So we'd run the debt service schedule knowing that they weren't going to borrow for a couple of years. And we'd be very conservative by throwing a 50 basis point assumed interest rate increase uh, on top of that. So, you know, you, you, you go from a, you know, that, that 50 basis points of cushion really needed to be 175. And oh, by the way, the project is 40% more expensive than you expected it to be. It makes for some pretty challenging choices. So do I need the, do I really need the fire station? According to the firefighters, the answer is probably yes. Um, so what are you not going to, what are you not going to finance, right? Are you taking out that stormwater project? Cause nobody cares about stormwater until there's a flood or are you, you know, not doing that park project because uh, because life safety is more important than quality of life projects. Those those kinds of conversations are actively going on, and they're incredibly painful for elected officials and staff. There's all kinds of economic uncertainty, and yet uh, Michigan, like it seems a few states, is in a situation where you have this kind of double-edged sword of uh, maybe a, a more revenue than expected, a budget surplus. And some discussion about some tax policy changes, maybe in response to that. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on there and how you are dealing with that uh, that economic uncertainty? 
So you're describing my last three years absolutely perfectly. You know, coming into the pandemic, those early months of the pandemic, you know, the state of Michigan goes through a process of revenue forecasting, which is viewed as a best practice across the country. But we we get together with the House and Senate fiscal agencies, and that's where we agree on those revenue targets, which then the budget is built around. So if you think about January and May, that timing, if you think back to 2020, um, you know, we had a revenue conference in May, which was just basically with one month of data, pandemic related data at the time. And that was a terrible month for the economy. You know, we saw people completely pull back on spending. We saw a decent amount of layoffs and that created, you know, us to reduce our revenue forecast by $3 billion. And, you know, we're talking, you know, not a huge budget here. And our general fund is about, you know, 10 or $11 billion in Michigan. But over time, you know, as we saw the pandemic play out, it, the behavior, the consumer behavior and what was happening um, with revenues was tracking along in a way that was, I think, surprising to everyone. I mean, first of all, you know, you you had, of course, you had the stimulus programs, you had the pandemic unemployment assistance, the extra $600 that came to those who were unemployed. You had um, the the Paytech Protection Program. Um, we had we saw about $40 billion of that in Michigan um, coming to our small businesses. You saw just the stimulus checks and all of that additional dollars that came in to everyone. And uh, people spent it. But what was what was really interesting was they spent it on things that were different than they had done pre-pandemic, which makes sense. You know, when they didn't have the ability to spend on services, and most of these were actually consumer-driven behaviors, unless having to do with governmental mandates. You know, we saw um, the shift in the types of things that people were buying. So if they're shifting from services and going to goods and um, people, instead of taking their family vacations, were fixing up their houses, they were building decks, they were putting in pools, they were buying RVs, they were buying bicycles. I mean, I don't know if you can remember, like you couldn't find any of these things in those days. And that translated to lots and lots of additional revenue that we saw for the state. And we saw sales tax exceed records numerous times over this period. We also saw, you know, that that corporations were doing pretty well. Our corporate income tax um, saw some really historic levels that we hadn't seen before in Michigan, and as well as just individual tax withholding. So people were working, they're making money, and th that was coming through um, into the state coffers through the, that withholding process. And we've been, you know, mulling over how long would those patterns last? Are people going to you know, always shift away from services? Have they decided that they prefer their RV vacations over taking plane trips? And that's really hard to figure out. Um, and it's just, I think, something that time will tell. But as a revenue forecaster who's, who's responsible for predicting the future, it's one of those questions that we keep coming back to. Um, and we, we really have not seen it. They continue to kind of perform at that elevated level. Well, another thing that we that has come up a lot in our episodes, and maybe overtly, and sometimes um, kind of in between the lines, but it's about human capital, and we, we mentioned that a little bit earlier in terms of of work from home. It comes up in so many different ways, and I think what really strikes me about this topic is that public finance or managing money a lot of times comes down to to the people and relationships. And it can be hard or difficult, even if times are, are good, if times are bad. I mean, sometimes it, it doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily about what's going on in the economy around you. It's about how you're managing it and, and who's managing it and, and those interactions. 
one of the guests that really explained that much better than I just did is LaShawn Ross uh, from Plano, Texas. And she talked about how a lot of things can seem like maybe they're an operational issue, but really it's, it's more about relationships. I'm finding that within our organization, what happens with that sometimes is that staff feels that, oh, we're going to use this digital format. And so this is going to remove that work from us. And what and and, and now we're having to have those conversations that, well, no, I don't know that the intent was that all of your work in this would go away and you would find just a polished, finished product once the, um, the candidate puts all of that information in. Does it really make less work for us on this side or does it change the way we work and so we're having to manage expectations in this environment we also find that it's challenging sometimes for people who have worked in a particular system for 5 10 15 20 years to now be told that we're going to this different system and people will feel like, well, what does that mean for me? I have mastered this system. I don't want a new system. I'm not sure that I'm comfortable with a new system. Am I going to be as good with this new system? But that brings it back to what we were talking about a little bit before. Ultimately, we're trying to do what's best for the organization and how can we minimize cost and maximize service through even the these technological systems that we're bringing on board. Um, and then we still have to know how to listen and communicate as human beings, even with the use of these systems. We still have to talk through what are they going to mean for us? How are they going to change the way that we you know, manage paperwork, the way that we retain documents? Are we going to be paperless? And what does it mean to be paperless? And how do we make sure that we are only maintaining what we need and that we're looking at retention schedules? And I, I, I say all of that to say that it is so complex and we try as a society, I think we we can sometimes promote the expectation that if we can just find the right system, it's going to fix everything and everything will be fine and we don't have to worry about it and it's going to make our job so much easier. There is such a need to make sure that we have completely vetted those needs and those expectations on the front end and that we've brought all the stakeholders in together and that we've asked the questions that we need to ask to be sure that we are, that these systems will then serve our needs and we can adapt with our abilities and competencies and skills. The technology that's available for us today is very good, but what we find in our, in our department, in our organization, is that there's so much that we still have to do our work to determine, is this a system that we need? Or am I just putting one system on top of another, on top of another in the interest of efficiency and finding that not only are we spending money unnecessarily in those scenarios, but I don't know that we're gaining efficiency of outcomes and work. So it does not replace the need to communicate. It does not replace the need to do our due diligence in determining what is the system intended to do for us and are we willing to do the work necessary to maximize what the system said it can do. Yeah, you make a great point there, Liz, about the human side of financial leadership and LaShawn Ross illuminated that so well for us. That's something that doesn't get enough attention in large part because the people who become financial leaders are often really good at the finance side and not necessarily uh, as focused on the human side. And it's been great to see 
that theme of the human dimension of leadership come up so often in this podcast. An important part of that human dimension, of course, is also just getting the right people in the jobs. We heard early on from Joshua Franzel from the Mission Square Research Institute telling us about some of the trends in hiring around state and local government finance jobs. And the findings from their research uh, were especially interesting for those of us who are focused on the workforce for state and local finance. When we ask, you know, over the past year, what positions have HR directors had a hard time filling? Accounting positions, 49% of HR directors report having a hard time filling accounting positions over the past year. Business and financial operations positions, 47% of HR directors have a hard time filling those positions. And so that's sort of like some examples of specific positions. And then more generally, when, when we ask, so looking ahead and looking more broadly, what generalizable skill sets are most needed for new hires? At the top, uh, one of, at, near the top of the list, finance uh, uh, generalizable skill sets, 19% of HR directors listed in the top uh, top eight position uh, uh, generalizable skill sets needed uh, for for new hires. And so, there certainly is a demand there. Um, uh, now, now when it comes to sort of the the budget piece of adequate compensation and and benefits. Um, now, I know uh, both of you have written extensively about the, the two tranches of federal funds that have come into uh, uh, to localities, states and localities over the past uh, year and plus, and then also the relatively healthy tax and fee revenues that governments are realizing, especially over the past like half, half year to a year, um, if not longer. Um, so th they're in a position to, to hire and to, and to 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 increase um, compensation and and, and benefit um, compensation, but in some instances, you're dealing you're starting from a position where pay structures haven't been updated to account for inflation in some environments for a decade, and so you're having to bring bring up uh, compensation from a from a, a suboptimal position in terms of of, of 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 where they were starting from, and then on on the on the benefit side, a lot of the retirement and health benefits, especially in the wake of the Great Recession, were re reformed and reduced in forms of benefit generosity. So where benefits used to be truly a strategic uh, advantage for the public sector, it still is, but it's just not to the same extent perhaps it once was. So those are two aspects that I would like to highlight as well. All right. Right. So <laughs> if you are a graduate student in public administration or public policy listening to the pod. I think that was a pretty good commercial for taking all the budgeting <laughs> and finance courses and accounting courses you can find because those are, have always been and can appear to be these days, even more difficult positions to fill. The workforce issues with public finance are, are incredibly difficult to, to manage for those who are, who are trying to do so. And I think one of the, one of the things that has emerged as, as an, as a piece of that is what's going on with with work from home and telework and that is something that i mean as everybody knows is is, is um that private sector is leaning into public sector trying to lean into depending on where you are and but it's just an interesting interesting development in terms of of how we work is that the fact that we we don't have to all work in the same place to do to do the same job and it's something i'd, I'd done some research on previously and through that research had spoken with berke attila who's now with baltimore the city of baltimore and he's really really interested in this as well and and we had him on and and i really appreciated his thinking around this topic of 
how to look at telework from a public sector point of view. When you all rolled out like a year or two into the pandemic, Montgomery County officially, you know, established its remote work policy. Can you tell me about the challenges there? And, and was there any pushback in, in not going back to how things had always been? All, all of the above, there were a lot of challenges. There, were, there, there was pushback, um, obviously. And uh, most of the people that are tele, teleworking or what is about the telework um, was in the union, union health positions. So we couldn't do this without their help and without their understanding. Luckily, we agreed on our interest, employee safety, as well as future way of uh, attracting and retaining employees to provide services. So the biggest challenge was to decide whether or not we're going to do this experiment and learn from it and then have a policy or legitimize it with a policy and then, then come back to the drawing board if it's not working. So that was the biggest decision. And I think Montgomery County has done a great job in that regard to do the policy officially that we, we are going to adapt this new way of work. We're gonna tie that to the work that is being done. And we got the, the union support with us to, to develop the plan so that we could formalize something. But in return, that allowed us to be able to now build actual applications that allowed us to be able to track payroll codes. In return, we could see the utilization, then we were able to tie tie that all to, okay, this group is working X many hours remote, this many personnel working remotely, but let's look at the outcome of the deliverables of this work. Challenge was old school versus new school management and leadership. People have their calcified ways of working and then they only think that people do their work most effectively if you're uh, seen by your manager or your manager sees you. But there are multiple, multiple success stories even that because COVID didn't allow us to do this for just two weeks and get back. It really sequestered us for about two years. So I have seen many people that might considered as old school mentality that I need to see my employees to work with. In a year, they're just like, oh my God, I am doing much better. So I am now have changed my opinion as to how, how this is going to roll out. And the law department was one of the very early examples. They tracked their data. They were first, I need that serendipitous relationship with my litigation people, solicitors. I need to see them. I need to ask about them. But they couldn't do it. But they continued to track their performance. And then at a year after, everybody came in and said, it's like, well, actually, our, our turnaround times for document review litigation is everything is better. There's nothing against that this is not working, except we always maintained the coaching and mentorship idea. So we gave the ability to the departments to create intentional get gatherings rather than you need to be in the office for x many days but we focused on why behind you need to be here and focus that to employee development so all of that was possible for us to, to lead it in a ten thousand plus organization with a formal policy without the policy there's no structure it's chaos and then last but not least on human capital we had an opportunity to talk to mark scott uh, also known as a, a fix-it financial manager in, in Liz's own <laughs> words, somebody who's worked in uh, many very challenging local government environments. And we talked to him about a lot of different things, but it kept coming back to this question of, again, the, the human side of financial leadership. Liz, what were you know, your big takeaways from our discussion with Mark Scott? Yes, um, so many, I feel like, but I think two things stand out most to me. And one of them is the fact that he 
is seeking out this challenge, that there's like a certain brand or breed of, of people in city management or in the public sector who, uh, who run toward the fire. And I think he's one of those, and there's certainly a lot of others. That's a very important thing. That's something that I think, especially these days with, with municipalities struggling as they are, um, we, we definitely need people like that. The other thing that stood out to me was just his, how he described storytelling and as a, as a part of the city manager's job. And that's something that doesn't really get talked about too, too much either, but it's, there is an art to being able to talk about management, talk about fiscal management in a way that really kind of brings it home. When you think of a, a fix-it city manager, what has that meant to you in the, in the course of uh, playing that role in different jurisdictions? When I look at it, what's, what's happened to me is that after the 20 years in Beverly Hills, I decided that um, that wasn't how I wanted to define my career, uh, being, being in one city and, and a city perceived as, as having fewer problems. Um, so I started looking where else I could go and what else I could do. And I've, I maybe stumbled into this role of going to cities that really needed some help. And I've always had this philosophy that if the city management profession really wants to live up to its code of ethics, that we have to provide managers not only to, to the cities that are easy to manage, but we have to provide managers to the cities that aren't. And so I've actually sought out those other kinds of opportunities. And one of those um, dropped me into San Bernardino at the time of the, the bankruptcy. And, and that was intentional. I mean, I, I chose to go there because I felt someone from our profession needed to, to help the city that was four years in the longest municipal bankruptcy in the city's or in city history. So, um, a lot more learning occurred every time I went into one of those positions. There's several things that can be done and in good cities are done. You know, these days we call, we call the annual comprehensive financial report an ACFR. That document isn't very readable, but if, if you take that document and you prepare relevant ratios and indicators and you plot them over time um, you can actually do a visual presentation of the the health um, or at least the trends in your community and you can actually get a sense for where you are if other cities did the same thing and you actually had that kind of comparative data it would go a long way toward helping um, elected officials understand what their financial records say. So Liz, I think that's a great place to leave it for this recap of our first 25 episodes of the Public Money Pod. It's been a blast and look forward to continuing to bring our listeners all this great content, our uh, lots of great guests, many, many more to come, I'm sure. And I'm sure we'll keep coming back to these themes and many others. Uh, meanwhile, just so our listeners can have a sense of what to think about and, and have uh, nowhere to look, you know, what are you working on right now, Liz, as it relates to these themes or anything else that strikes your fancy in the world of state and local public finance? Yeah, you know, what I really love about this podcast, one of the many things I love about this podcast, I should say, is is how 
much it, it lines up with the, the stuff I'm working on or how much it gives me story ideas. And, and I think something that I've really kind of glommed onto is this idea is, is one of the themes that we talked about in terms of, of data and storytelling. And, and so I've been working on some pieces around the economic volatility going on. Um, I'm working on a piece right now um, that's a sort of a follow-up piece to my long story short on uh, on accounting. And this piece is going to be for Route 50. It is going to be about the auditor shortage and what that's doing in terms of slowing down state and local financial reporting. I'm also continuing to follow the story of Chester, Pennsylvania and, and what's going on there. So working with you and doing this podcast has really just been such a good benefit to my reporting. And I think it's made it so much more informed and given me so many ideas. And it's been a chance to highlight your research too, as well, Justin, what more do you have going on there? Yeah, I do. And I, well, before answering that, I would agree completely with everything you've said about um, how great it's been. And, and just a chance to, to learn about what you're thinking about day in and day out has been beneficial as well, because, um, from a research perspective, you know, we come to these things a little bit differently than you do as, as a journalist. And it's, it's nice to have kind of both have the, you know, the ability to, to be thinking about these things in a, in a much more fast paced, much more day to day kind of direct way. Um, and then also be able to think big picture, zoom out, take our time on some things, go into maybe a little bit more depth than we can typically. And to kind of have both, I think has been really great for the podcast. Um, yeah, so we're, we're continuing to work on the things we've been working on all along. Again, a lot of the things that we've talked about here on the pod, we've got a, a paper forthcoming on the lodging tax and, and managing the lodging tax, doing some work on tax preferences, a theme that we've covered a, a couple different times on some different episodes. And uh, at the Center for Municipal Finance, we continue to work on data products that are useful for anybody who's trying to track the way that investors are looking at cities and counties and school districts these days. It's been a really interesting things to watch as the pandemic recovery happens, see who's doing really well post-pandemic, who's doing less well post-pandemic. And we'll continue to work on those kinds of resources and others, again, all in the name of helping us just to better understand the very broad landscape of state and local government finance. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is brought to you in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual and the Government Finance Officers Association.